Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, in conversation with Dr. Ramona Vijayarasa. Vijayarasa is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a Women's Leadership Institute Australia research fellow. Her new book, The Women President, Leadership, Law and Legacy for Women, based on experiences from South and Southeast Asia, was released by Oxford University Press in June of this year. Here's the recording of their conversation. Hi, I'm Mary Crooks, the Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, and I get to do some wonderful things from time to time, and one of them is to liaise with readings and bring you very, very special insights into new publications. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Ramona Vijayarasa, author of a newly released book, The Woman President, published by Oxford Press. So welcome, Ramona. And I thought that you and I might begin by jointly acknowledging our First Nation peoples. Uh, I understand that you're on Gadigal land and I'm on Wurundjeri land, and I'm sure you join me in paying the deepest respect to our First Nations people to acknowledge the longest surviving living culture on the planet. So welcome, Ramona. Thank you, Mary. It's lovely to be in conversation with you, and thank you for those kind words and that beautiful acknowledgement. Ramona, I was very struck by reading your book Uh, and we'll come to issues of length and and cost and accessibility at the very end. Um, But one of the things I wanted to do in opening up our conversation was to go straight to a quote which I think helps our listeners to segue into your motivation for writing this book. And you say, at the time of writing this book, I was pouring through Michelle Obama's belonging. I read and reread its most inspirational pages. Michelle Obama wrote of Trump's inauguration ceremony as he took the oath of office on a biting cold January day in Washington, D.C. Michelle Obama was plagued by worry for the American people and at one point simply gave up smiling. I actually remember seeing that, Ramona. In her words, she said, quote, sameness breeds sameness until a concerted effort is made to change it. So absolutely powerful words and and those words underpin I think your motivation in writing the book but let me stop second guessing and ask you why you have been so driven to put so much effort into this wonderful publication The Woman President. That's a great question to get us started Mary. I have always been intrigued by this idea that a woman leader could bring something different to the table Will women leaders lead differently? Will they lead better? And will life necessarily be better for fellow women when a woman occupies executive office? You know, I'm someone who spent a decade working in civil society for international NGOs and international organisations all around the world. And I think the activist in me wants to believe that a woman leader will lead differently, partly because I want to help drive up the numbers. And I think this was part of my motivation for writing the book. Some of your listeners, our listeners may not be that aware, but currently there are only 30 female presidents 
and prime ministers all around the world, which is incredibly few given we're talking about 200 countries. So women have really only ever occupied around 15% of executive positions worldwide. So some of our listeners might have seen the picture of the G7, the group of seven, a few weeks ago, which was a meeting in Germany of all the major seven nations around the world with an all-male lineup, with the exception of the female president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And so I want evidence to be able to change that picture, and that's, I guess, the activist in me. I think the academic in me wants a sound evaluation to be able to do that, and I hope I achieve that in the book because obviously there are positives and negatives from all the women leaders that I study, but I do think we've spent so long preoccupied by this absence of women because the numbers are so low that we haven't spent enough time talking about their presence. And what happens when women do make it to that top job is a really interesting conversation and I'm really excited to be able to have it through the book because I do think something different happens when women make it to executive office and we need the evidence to have a conversation about what that looks like. Ramona, before we get into that, I do want to take a minute, though, to ask you a more personal question about what sustained and nourished you during such a writing project because it's enormous what you have pulled off. So how did you keep your mind on the job and how did you stay sane? Well, that's a beautiful question, Mary, that I don't think enough people ask. I think if if you've been privileged to have an opportunity to write an academic work, you might know this, but it's actually been a five-year journey from when I got started what sustained me, I suppose one of one of the things that really sustained me was focusing on Sri Lanka. So I'm actually the child of migrant parents who came to Australia from Malaysia in the 1970s. My maternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather were both Sri Lankan. And it's actually where I started my field work. So this journey of writing this book took me to all three countries in the pre-COVID-19 days. It actually feels a little bit impossible when we think about the state of the world today and certainly the state of Sri Lanka, but I started in Sri Lanka and I think that opportunity to connect with my roots that were so distant and yet so close simultaneously was a real privilege in writing this book. I think also the willingness of people to have a conversation and the way in which some of our informants, if you've ever done qualitative research of this kind, open their doors is really beautiful. You know, I spent hours in the living rooms of some people chatting over coffee about politics then and now. And I do say this to people, the image and the experience of talking with those women and men, activists, former members of parliament, ministers and scholars from the region, it stays in my mind long after I've ever left the country. So I think that also is a motivation of wanting to accurately tell the stories that have been told to me. I suppose a third motivation was 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 something I created as part of this project. So when I set out to evaluate whether women leaders make a difference for women and particularly what is their legislative footprint, I discovered that there were nearly 2,000 laws enacted when these four women were in power. And so I'm a, a lover of the law. I've always wanted to be a lawyer, but I knew I couldn't alone comb through 2,000 laws, let alone laws from multiple jurisdictions. However, I discovered there was no tool to actually allow me to evaluate whether those laws were good for women. There were lots of gender indices, but none that could pull apart the provisions of a law and say, this is actually going to advance and improve the lives of women in that country. 
So as part of my research, I actually created the Gender Legislative Index, which is a tool that allows us to do that. I I want to come back to that. Bring you back now to the treatment, the broad treatment of your book, which I think you have just hinted at. One of the profound things I found about your book, Ramona, is the combination of rigour and readability. You know, I mean, I I read a lot of academic work um, in my professional life and I do struggle at times with a lot of academic language and you cut through all of that. I think it's quite an extraordinary quality attached to your very, very copious tome that you have, I I felt totally confident in the rigour that you were bringing to your work and I could actually read it with a high level of comfort, which meant your insights were just landing on me all the time. So really, really warm congratulations because I think I think that is not often a duality with a a lot of work. And I loved your focus on women from South and Southeast Asia and the three countries involved. And I want to get you to talk a little bit about that before we get into the Gender Legislative Index. I love the focus because you know what? It's not only the absence of uh, women leaders but when, when we do read a lot of material, despite the small number, we tend, I think, to be reading about women leaders from a European and an American context and even in our own context here. So I, I really found it refreshing to be deep diving into three countries that don't fit with the European and or American or, you know, the Australian cultural context. So with that in mind, can you... Can you tell our listeners in broad brush terms the overarching theme to the the book and the add women and stir approach Mm. before we get into the index? Just the the overarching themes around the book. Tell us a bit more about what these countries were and the leaders that you focused on. Absolutely, Mary. Why don't we start there? So I, I very much agree with you that we really have this lens of Asia, despite the fact that high number of women who have made it to executive office in the Asia region. So I guess we'll go back to Sri Lanka, which is a fascinating country because it actually had the first female head of government in the world elected in 1960, Siramabo Bandra after her husband was assassinated. And her daughter, Chandrika Bandaranaike Kumaratunga, is the was the fifth president of Sri Lanka and is one of the subjects of my book. Then jump over the waters to Indonesia. I studied Megawati Sukarnaputri, who led Indonesia from 2001 to 2004 as the country's first and only female president. And I have to say that the jostling over whether or not it was acceptable for a Muslim-majority nation to have a female head of state is a fascinating read and is not given enough treatment in the literature. And then the Philippines. So the Philippines is a country I was very privileged to go work in at a coalition against trafficking NGO just after I graduated. And it's this beautiful nation with this vibrant women's movement and has also had the privilege of two female presidents. So Corazon Aquino, who came in in 1986 after the Marcos dictatorship, and then President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who led for the first decade of, of the 2000s. So they were my four countries. And I think when we, because women have so rarely occupied executive office, our lens of analysis, our expectations are very male-oriented. And so our frames of understanding what leadership looks like and what is good leadership or bad leadership is very masculine. And then we apply that lens 
to our study of women and expect them to fit in the boxes. So I hope in this book my starting point is women and women's leadership and women's lives. So it's very much centred around does a woman lead differently and for fellow women and who are those women in the first place and really unpacking the diversity of women both as leaders but also as women in those nations. And I think I think the power in your book is around the focus on the presidential power, the position of president, the executive power, uh, and and attempting to analyse their performance and their legacy by looking at their legal legacy. Uh, so I, I think that itself is a very powerful way of, of attacking the question of do women lead in different ways from men and breaking out of some of the more conventional analysis. So take, take us through that idea of legal legacy now by talking about the very, very insightful gender legislative index, the GLI. I think you've created something really, really important here. So take our listeners through it a bit step by step as a tool. Sure, Mary. So as I mentioned, I was keen to fill a gap and there is no tool that allows us to evaluate, are laws good for women? Will these laws make women's lives better, to put it simply? And so the gender legislative index is a tool that is built on international standards because every country has signed up to those standards and it's about telling those countries have you delivered what you promised you would deliver I particularly look at the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women which has been a convention around that's now reaching its uh, four decades and the gender legislative index allows human evaluators to interrogate the provisions of a law, whether that's a law on gender-based violence or a law on taxation, and to evaluate whether those provisions are good for women or bad, and then give an overall score for the law in terms of a spectrum from meeting international standards to complete disregard. A particularly exciting machine learning component that brings a bit more integrity and removes some of the human bias we bring to evaluating a law. And really the GLI, the Gender Legislative Index, has a life beyond the book. But what it enabled me to do in this book was to deep dive into laws that we often think about as being women's laws, gender-based violence or reproductive health, and laws that we rarely think about from a gender perspective like taxation or anti-corruption interventions, and to evaluate the performance of these presidents through that lens. And I think presidential leadership is particularly interesting because these women were able to exercise quite significant power over the law through executive orders, through veto powers. For example, Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo outright vetoed a reproductive health bill, calling an abortion bill. The President Aquino passed many executive orders that really advance women's rights in terms of non-discrimination against at work and supporting women to have better representation from unions in the workplace. So this power of a president to control legislation is a remarkable one and it provides this really neat link between being in executive office and being able to evaluate what difference they've made on women's lives, not just at the time, but in the future, which is where this concept of the legal legacy comes from. Picking up on what you've just said, that to focus also on the gamut of legislation and not, not to restrict the analysis to more obvious gender lens analyses, but to pick up, for example, on taxation, on fiscal policy, to, to pick up on stuff that is 
is more conventionally uh, and, and seen as a sort of neutral area of legislation, but in fact has impacts on women and, and on men. So tell us a little bit more about some of the examples where these women presidents were creating and endorsing legislation that was not sort of conventionally or, you know, up in lights going to be impacting on women, but in fact was important to women's lives. Well, earlier, Mary, you asked me about one of my motivations. And to me, the ability to bring a women's rights lens to areas of law that are really considered from that angle was a real motivation. I knew I was doing something that would make a contribution for this book, but beyond that, because I think we constantly need to view women's rights as applicable to everything. And, you know, there's some fascinating examples in the book, but I suppose I would draw on a couple of key ones that might really resonate. At the tail end of President Kumaratunga's legacy, the tsunami hit Sri Lanka, and she really had to, to grapple with that. And so I was able to look at the tsunami legislation that came in to create support mechanisms, financial support, structures around housing reform, and whether she was able to bring a gender lens. Now, she had appointed as a cabinet member a female who was responsible for housing and construction and helped her lead that tsunami recovery. She made sure that there were women in leadership levels both at the very local level right through to the government level and particular funds for female widows. So it's a space which at the time there wasn't a lot of good scholarship on how to do disaster risk reduction and management from a gender perspective. And I think it was definitely something that she should be credited for as part of her, her legacy and her time as president in Sri Lanka. Another really interesting one that we rarely bring this gender lens to is corruption. And this was a major part of President Megawati's agenda. She wanted to bring in an anti-corruption commission. She wanted greater diversity in leadership roles, including in the judiciary. And I think she had a mixed performance. But again, we rarely think about how do you bring a gender perspective to an issue of corruption and how does corruption affect women and men differently? And the book allows me to tease out some of those ideas. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And and did we not see this on display actually in the last federal election in, in Australia? It's it's not surprising that the so far the best model for an anti-corruption commission in in this country has been developed and promoted by Helen Haynes as an independent member of the the federal parliament. But I'm digressing a little bit. Ramona, talk us through uh, because readers will be able to to look in more detail at the the gender legislative index. Tell us a little bit more about other formulations in your book, such as the triangle of empowerment that you develop. Well, I love this concept of the triangle of empowerment because what I found in the book is that when women occupy presidential office, there is this sudden window of opportunity that many activists and movements exploit to bring about change. The woman's vote is used to negotiate legislative reform and we do see women-friendly outcomes as a result. Gender-based violence is a particularly interesting example because all three countries passed their first ever standalone law on gender-based violence. When these three of the four women happened to be in power, I think that's a remarkable coincidence of three countries passing GBV laws from 2004 to 2005. And a major credit for that are the women's movements. So, you know, I thank Anne-Marie Holly, who's this scholar who wrote about the triangle of empowerment, which is this idea that law reform comes about when you have at one point of the triangle civil society activists, 
you have women in the legislature and you have femocrats, so female bureaucrats, and they make up the three prongs of the triangle. But I think there is a place in that triangle of empowerment for the woman president because the woman president does play a role. And you could see this in not just the gender-based violence laws but in terms of a gender equality quota being passed in Indonesia. You could. What's really interesting about this um, triangle of empowerment is when the woman president really played quite a pivotal role in the drafting and pushing through of that legislation. So I think it's about finding a way to credit these women leaders when credit is due for their role in legislative reforms that have fundamentally changed women's lives. And I do want to take the chance to really talk about briefly about the Philippines here because Corazon Aquino came in in the late 1980s and she brought about law reform that Filipino women benefit from today, decades on. In 1992, she introduced maternity leave when Australia only introduced paid parental leave in 2010. She introduced a gender-responsive budgeting mechanism where every government agency had to allocate 5% of their budget for gender issues, and that still lives on in the Philippines today. So it goes back to the idea of the legal legacy, but it also reminds us we have to find a place for the woman president in that triangle of empowerment, which is a good model to talk about law reform for women. Yeah, so the triangle of empowerment, you have the important role of women in civil society activist movements at one point of the triangle. You have women bureaucrats, for example, at another, women in politics at another. But the triangle that's formed in the middle is, in fact, the woman president. I can I can sort of see it. I'm going yeah. to do more thinking about your triangle of empowerment. Moving on, there's another really important concept, I think, threading through your work. You acknowledge the important work in the late 80s of Helga Hearns um, around state feminism. And I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for our, our listeners. Sure. I, w- I would love to. You know, I think, you know, I'll, I'll particularly focus on, on an aspect of the book that I think really hasn't been aired in the literature or anywhere really else, which is the capacity of some of these women to bring gender and gender equality debates to the global stage. We have to remind ourselves that these women led countries that were highly patriarchal, where there was a very clear delineated role for women. Many would even ask, should a woman president be there in the first place? When President Kumaratunga cut her hair, that was, you know, to the outrage of constituents because she didn't have the image of the strong Asian woman leader. So these women leaders were constantly restricted in so many overt and less overt ways. And what I found is a greater ability to talk about gender and gender equality sometimes in international spaces, whether it was in a bilateral meeting between Sri Lanka and India or Sri Lanka and China or at the United Nations. So I think we need to interrogate better what might be a really powerful and potential role of women leaders to advance feminist foreign policy. Now, it's interesting, early in our conversation, we talked about our lens of analysis being America or Europe, and I think the same can be said when we talk about feminist foreign policy. We often talk about what wealthier nations do in terms of their aid and development in the global south, in countries that are developing. But we rarely look at what does feminist foreign policy look like from some of these countries, and I think there's a lot to be said about how much these women advanced agendas around education and gender-based violence in the United Nations in these global policy spaces that is a different model of state feminism that hasn't been talked about to the Mm. level that it needs to be. Absolutely. And 
So let, let's ask the tantalising question of you before we go into some of the broad conclusions. So do women in presidential roles as leaders, do they make a positive difference uh, that men presidents in roles might not make in the same way? Do they actually make a positive difference or is it, as Michelle Obama said, sameness breeding sameness? Look, I think if I'm going to answer that question with a bit of accuracy, I would definitely have to acknowledge that these are elite women. And there's a beautiful Indian scholar uh, who's talking about the fact that in reality that the interests of these women cannot be the same as their uneducated poor maids, and I talk about that in the book. So these are very elite and privileged women. Having acknowledged that, I don't think uh, we would put them in the category of sameness breeds sameness. There is a difference Women leaders make a difference on women's lives. And I briefly say in three ways. The first of which isn't actually legal, but there is a role model effect of having a woman in power. And I think this is very hard to quantify, but I had people in all three countries tell me that today a young woman or girl in those three nations, in the Philippines, Sri Lanka and Indonesia, can say, I want to be president and it's not a crazy idea. It's about carving that pathway to politics. Even our former Prime Minister Julia Gillard said it will not be easy for the next Australian female Prime Minister, but it will be easier. And if I can anecdotally say, I was at a conference very recently where a woman who heads an an NGO, a Filipino origin woman who heads an NGO, came to me and she cried to me when she discovered I have this new book coming out. And she said, I was there at the EDSA revolution when Corazon Aquino came to power and Corazon Aquino and Gloria Macapagalaro changed my lives. So I think we can't dismiss how significant that role model effect is. And we've had so few women in executive office to be able to quantify it, but more work needs to be invested in trying to understand what that really looks like. The second thing I'd say is women leaders, I've seen these women leaders appoint more women to cabinet positions than fellow men. So if we are talking about a direct comparison to men, what's a fair analysis is to look at how many women were in cabinet by presidential men who led before and led after these women. And these women had more female cabinet members appointed than the men who preceded them, including to roles that are often not given to women, like construction, housing and development, or the first Filipino Minister for Employment. You know, this is groundbreaking and significant change. In fact, Gloria Macapagalaro had 12 women cabinet members in her cabinet compared to two from her predecessor. It's a remarkable increase. And three, and we've talked about this, I would definitely say that there is an imprint on the law that positive women-friendly outcomes result when women empower, whether that's a gender equality quota, laws on non-discrimination in the workplace, whether that is an attempt to better support the overseas Filipino workers, whether that's bringing democracy to a country that has allowed more women's NGOs to flourish and have a say in government decision-making. I think there is definitely a correlation between a woman in executive office and that window of opportunity to bring about legislative and policy reform that benefits women. So, Ramona, let's take just a few minutes. We need to draw this to a close uh, in the not-too-distant future. So apart from those insights, the broad conclusions from your work and where to from here, what do you really want to see happen as a result of, of the book and the insights that it yields. So take us to the broad conclusions first. So I suppose, you know, I think there's there's a couple of things we need to acknowledge that when women are in power, it's a very difficult balance that they 
have to undertake. And I talk about this throughout the book, but it really hits a point at the end where I talk about this double-edged sword that is gender. So it aids a woman's rise to power, but it can also really challenge them to be the kind of leaders that they want to be. But I think the motivation in writing this book and showing that women leaders do make a difference hopefully will stimulate a conversation that will allow us to look differently when we evaluate other women leaders in other countries around the world. So we now have the tools at hand to draw this link between executive office and a footprint on the law. And we have an understanding conceptually of how those presidential powers and the legislation impact different women's lives and in many different ways across a broad spectrum of legislation and areas of law. And so to me, I'm hoping that this, now that we have the tools in hand, we can begin to unpack, to really shift the conversation and have a better analysis of what happens when women are present. Because clearly good things happen when women are present, even if we have such a small sample to draw from. Yeah. I'm hoping also that where where it goes from here, uh, apart from you alerting uh, Julia Gillard, for example, to the book in her role with the Global uh, the Women's Leadership Institute based in the UK. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that you might also alert Michelle Obama and various women to the existence of your book. So get your publishers into some high-level promotion. Ramona, we need to draw it to a close. Um, I do want to commend you for uh, the scholarship and the clarity of the, the discourse that you have worked so hard to achieve And I think also our listeners can see that your ability to take these quite complex issues and and distill them with great clarity is terrific. And I hope you get lots of forums over the next months to uh, be able to promote the book in this way. Thank you, Mary. Look, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. I have two young daughters. And when I first had a conversation with my daughter who's eight, about what I was writing about, I explained to her, remember how we had this conversation, how Australia's only ever had one female prime minister, which was obviously before her time. Her reply was simply, that's unfair. And so I hope I do justice to the women who have made it to this difficult job of being president of their nations. And I hope I open the door to to having more conversations about why we need to see more women at this executive level from all spectrums of politics and how significant that is towards making the world a more equal place. So thank you, Mary, for such a wonderful conversation today. And thank you and goodbye to Ramona Vijayarasa, author of Woman President. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up for e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.